Thank you, Coach, and good morning again. Today, uh, we're going to explore the uh, kind of part two of our little series here on rest and work, uh, kind of with the, with given the season of, of Labor Day. So we talked about Sabbath last week, about the rest that God gives us as a sheer gift uh, in order to remind us that we're not slaves, but that we have the goal of resting perfectly in His presence one day uh, when we're no longer on this earth and we're with Him in heaven in that respect. And uh, the Sabbath is a foretaste of that, the time that we realize that our worth to God is not based upon our productivity in the world. Today we shift and look at, however, our productivity in the world. So I invite you to consider these scriptures with me and uh, the text before us. I was uh, helping lead a pastoral mentoring group. I describe it to people and they're like, pastor mentoring group. And you can tell the look on their face. They're like, that just sounds like herding cats or chasing chickens or whatever, you know, random metaphor you want to use for that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Um, and sometimes it's not. But uh, we gathered uh, from Midland to Andrews to Big Spring to Sweetwater. There were a dozen of us. Uh, two of us were not born in the United States. One was born in South Korea. One was born in Mexico. And then the other four of us are just boring, you know, Texas panhandle guys. But uh, we have great conversations and, and learn a lot about each other and hopefully about God and the church through that. And uh, one of my new friends uh, through this group that we've worked together with, his name is Young Sub Sim. And it took me a while to learn how to say his name. I probably still butcher it. But he's been a pastor for 30 years, a pastor in Korea for most of those years and has been in the United States for about 10 and still has to work really hard at his English and all these things, but just a, a beautiful guy. He, um, His son and daughter have just recently graduated from college and are in their own version of graduate school. One's at Duke and then one's at Princeton or somewhere uh, up there in one of those schools that, you know, where we associate with really smart people going. But um, anyways, his, his daughter kind of had a break and his wife, they wanted to go back to Korea and visit family. So they have been in Korea since May. And Young Sub's just real quiet. I mean, like, you can't read him at all. He keeps all his cards really close to his chest. And he begins to tell us about, you know, how you doing? How was your summer? And he's like, well, my wife's been gone with my daughter since May. And here we are, you know, almost September. And he tells us, he said, you know, for the first month, I was thinking, it's good to be alone. <laughs> and he said, ever since then, I'm remembering that God said, it is not good for man to be alone. <laughs> I'm dying laughing. I thought that is such a great characterization of things. It's nice to have a break every once in a while, but sometimes that break lasts a certain point in time. We're like, okay, ah, break's over. I'm ready to get back to it. I think that we experience work this way, right? We just long for that vacation. We look for that vacation properly. We say we can't wait to get to Rio Dosa or to the mountains, or we can't wait to get to the beach, wherever we want to go. And then we get there, and we enjoy our time, and we've been there. And if we were to prolong that and just stay away from our community and in vacation mode, you know, there reaches a point for all of us where we go, I'm kind of ready to get back to work, you know. And that, that's why the story of retirement is so often people, that they stop doing a job that they were paid to do, and immediately they find themselves up in the volunteer hours, right, serving in different ways because they're just going, I just can't sit at home. I just wasn't built for that. They're taking on new hobbies. They're gardening. They're woodworking. They're doing all kinds of things. They're volunteering at schools. They're volunteering in their churches. And it just is another one of those things that reminds us we were created to work. We were created to work. Work in its, in its very core, in its 
origin is not bad. Work is not just something we have to do to make money and eat and have a roof over our head. But there's a proper dignity and glory to work and that it came from God and that it was God's idea. Um, I was talking to a spouse of a semi-retired man this week, and she said, I said, well, how's your husband doing? And she said, well, you know, he's great. Today he's working with his boys, and he's so happy. <laughs> like He doesn't want that work day to end because he's working with his sons. And even though he doesn't, he's retired, he's still, when he loves us, his favorite thing to do is go work with his boys. There's something about that. <clears throat> we were created for work. In Genesis 2, we read uh, that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. He breathed breath into us through our, uh, the nostrils, and, and we became living creatures. And the Lord God planted a garden in a place called Eden in the east, and there he put the man that he had formed. All right, so our first place after creation is the garden that God created. We get started working immediately. Uh, the writer of Genesis describes the, the rivers and the context and the tree in the middle of the garden and all that stuff the names of all the rivers, the location of the rivers, what's found around the rivers. And then in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work and to keep it. This is early in the book. This is prior to any of the negative stuff happening in the story of God and our story. Put us in the garden, put us to work to keep the garden. So work, we know, should not be pure drudgery. All of work can't be just miserable. Uh, if it was created by God and our intention, just picture people that you know that you've seen them working when they really hit their stride. We all have images. We all know those people, right? Picture the teacher in the classroom. I can never be a teacher in a classroom, but just picture those ones that are there and you can tell they just, they, they have that connection and that love and they have the zeal and they're with their kids and all the kids are like repeating back all the phrases and they're bouncing forth and you know, kids come home from school and they tell us all the stuff and guess who the new boss in town is? It's my kindergarten teacher because she's the, she, you know, she has captured my imagination and she's teaching me. Like what glory is that? Uh, I have a friend who's a, a professor. At, used to be at McMurray's at A&M Commerce, and he teaches like information technology and all kinds of out of stuff that I don't understand. But I sat in on one of his classes one time because he was in our church, and I kind of wanted to get to know him better. And I said, hey, can I sit on one of your classes one day? And he was like, sure. And I'm in there with all these college kids, and I'm just watching the interaction. And they're just, I mean, he's in his little tweed coat, and they're just back and forth, and he's got them firing off, and they're talking poetry, and they're talking Facebook, and they're talking projection, and all this stuff. I'm like, this guy. He's just happy as a hog. You know, he's just in here doing his thing. I worked with a guy one time for a couple of weeks uh, that I, I can't even remember. his. I think he told me his name was Pablo just so I would quit asking what his name actually. I knew that wasn't his name because I would say it and he wouldn't turn around. But he didn't want me to know his real name, and that was fine. But we worked together for a week, and uh, a couple of weeks actually. And, he, and, and I, that guy could do things with a hammer and nail and a simple saw and a chisel that I, I could never mimic. He would send me the story. He'd say, now get this kind of nail. I'm like, nails are nails, man. No, no, you get this kind of nail and you do this kind of thing. And he would get this little sharpening stone out of his tool belt and he would sharpen his little chisel and tat, tat, tat around him. And the guy was just amazing. I'd just sit there and just watch him work. It was unbelievable. The glory of that work. Thinking of another, another friend in terms of like managing people uh, who oversees uh, a large group of people and he works with them often. And, you know, team building exercises and doing stuff. You can get him in a room with a hundred people and a tennis ball and he can capture their attention. 
he'll toss the ball around. They were talking. I'm like, how do you, how do you do that? But it's just the glory of watching him work, like doing what he does. It's an amazing thing. That's the good news, right? Work is a good thing, not pure drudgery. We find our stride, whether it's an animal or a human being, or we just watch these things at work, and it's a beautiful thing. There is, of course, bad news that comes in the story, and we're very familiar with that. The psalmist picked up on it, right? Just Our days are full of toil, and one day we fly away. <laughs> one day we're gone. And that's kind of the feeling of the bad news, right? On this earth, we will never escape the negative elements of work. There will, it seems, always be an element of drudgery. No matter how good the work is, it's going to be there. Genesis 3. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. goes on. And then to Adam he says, because of this, that, and the other, and this incident in the garden, and you listened to the serpent and the woman, you ate of this tree. I told you not to eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Because of you, there's like a trifold curse. You know, the animals, the human beings. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Awesome, I'm going to give you the tools to do the work. and You'll still work the farm. You're still going to farm, but it's going to cause you a lot of pain. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you return. So Genesis 1 and 2, we have this picture, you know, that hopefully we return to someday in the kingdom of God when we're no longer on this earth and we pick back up work that's not full of thorns and thistles. That's a great vision of heaven, right? An embodied heaven where we're working in gardens without, you know, mites and spiders and things that are tearing up our crops, uh, the, the pests and the drought. And But here we are for the time being where we face all of those things. The thorns and thistles are not hard for us to understand. Sometimes you, you talk to young people, they're starting new jobs, you know, and they work a job for six months, and, and they say, like, after a little while, they're like, man, this job is just not, I just don't have that inspiration, you know, it's really not just making me, giving me all the fulfillment that I need. So I'm looking for something else, I'm like, well, no job's going to give you all the fulfillment that you need. Uh, it's good to look for something that gives you fulfillment, but it's not going to give you all the fulfillment that you need, right? Only uh, God can do that, and so our work the best jobs in the world are full of thorns and thistles. That's just how it works. So, there's bad news. We continue this morning with the text that Tom read, though, and we kind of circle back to good news. That's the movement of creation and the fall of humanity and the redemption of God through the Holy Spirit, right, through the cross. That's We're on the other side of that. So we're walking around with that in our bones, in our bodies, and we pick back up that good news this morning in this story with work as well. God has begun a work of redemption in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And not just humans get a foretaste of that redemption on this earth. Remember Romans 8, and, the, and all creation is groaning with pain for redemption. The trees and the rocks and the hills and all of society are groaning for redemption not just humans. I love the way that uh, the United Methodist Church, we parsed out our, you know, what's our purpose in life? Why, why are we here? And if you look back since the, at least since the 50s, we've kind of narrowed down our purpose as a local church, the, the purpose of the local church, not all together, but the, every local church, our purpose is worship, 
And the second thing is discipleship, or what in the old language, the edification of believers, right? The connection, the strengthening of believers. And the third thing, you might think it would be, you know, evangelism or getting people saved or something like that. The third thing is the redemption of the world. The redemption of the world, which includes reaching people with the good news of the gospel that they might believe and be forgiven of their sins, but it also includes the transformation of the world. And through our ordinary jobs, our ordinary stuff, being teachers and bankers and all the things that we do. Miroslav Volf uh, was a Croatian uh, theologian who lost most of his family in the Nazi persecution uh, during the World War II era. And he wrote extensively on forgiveness and things. And he wrote a little paper uh, on work uh, that I read several years ago. And I pulled it back out this week. And I was remembering he, he makes a distinction. He says, basically, how we view the end of the world will shape how we work in the current world. So he uses the, the Latin terms. I'm going to look back and make sure I don't say this, butcher this. The uh, anhelatio mundi. That's one way to look at the world, right? The annihilation of the world. If we think that at the end of the world, the end of all things, God just wipes everything out and there's one big ball of fire and just torches it to the ground. And then heaven, you know, we fly away and float around in clouds forever. That's one way to look at the end of all things. If we think of the world that way, that it'll all go up in flames, it doesn't really inspire us or encourage us to work for the redemption of said world that one day is just going to go up in flames. But if we look at the end of all things, uh, transformatio mundi, the transformation of the world, that that's how God redeems the world, then that all of a sudden makes us realize, like, hey, we've got, we do have a part to play. God is working to redeem and transform the world, and he's invited you and I to participate in that redemption. It's very humbling and very staggering to think that my Excel spreadsheet and your board meeting and our dinner with our children participates in the transformation of the world. So Colossians 1. <clears throat> From the day that we've heard of your faith, right? Our mutual brothers and sisters have told us you have this great faith. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing good fruit in every work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Sometimes I think we're guilty of reading Paul's letters or other things that we think we see these things about pleasing God in our work. And we just locate that in the context of the church. So, well, just when you're doing spiritual work, you know, be pleasing to God and be an aroma to God. When you're praying and when you're worshiping and when you're doing God's work in the context of the church. But we know that the church in Paul's day, just like it is today, was made up of all kinds of people. Some people, their whole life was given to the work of the Lord and, and pastors and bishops and all that. Other people, most people, were working everyday jobs, and they were worshiping all, all along the way. And so we know that there's a more robust view of work in the New Testament than sometimes we hear about. And I love this idea of just imagining all of the work that we do with our hands, that God has given us, the gifts that he's given us to work, that we might be pleasing to God in the work that we do. Again, a staggering thought, a thing to imagine. Not just if we're preaching or teaching Sunday school or praying, but when we're grading papers and when we're bouncing our checkbooks and when we're buying groceries, work in a manner 
pleasing to the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ includes all work, all the work that we have been called to do. Um, I think when we talked about this last year, you know, there, there is the caveat and the disclaimer. There's some work that we would say, you know, it's not going to bring glory to God. Uh, so, you know, my little side gig, you know, dealing drugs, probably not the thing that, that uh, would bring glory to God. Uh, but, you know, that, those things notwithstanding, the work that we do, the work that we do that contributes to the good of society, all of that. It's a great reminder just to not forget who we work for. Uh, one of my Old Testament professors, Sandra Richter, would always tell us at some point in the semester, now you, she'd shake her finger at us, now you people remember, when you get out there and you're pastoring your churches and you're doing your stuff, you don't forget who you work for. Don't be like the kings of Israel and forget who you work for. You don't work for the people, you don't work for, and she would just upbraid us for what seemed like half an hour and say, you work for one person, and his name is the God of Israel, and don't you forget it. And we'd all just kind of be like, yes, ma'am. But no matter where we go to work, no matter where our desk is located, if our desk is the dash of our pickup, we can't forget who we work for. Walk and work in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. I want to close with an invitation just to conceive our work that way, to imagine our lives before God in that way. Certainly, certainly, certainly to please God in its most basic sense. We remember this in the waters of baptism, right? Before Jesus does anything for God, Jesus says later, he says, I only do what pleases God. That's, that's what I'm about, is pleasing God. But before Jesus ever does anything, he's baptized by John in the Jordan. And what does God say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. As dignified and glorious as our work is, there's no work that we can do that will make God love us any more or make God love us any less. God's love is not diminished by my work performance, for good or for bad. The hope of the gospel is that God's pleasure is foundational to everything else that we do. Coming through the waters of baptism, we are all equal, right? We all stand in the same ground. We all have the same starting place. I love the way that John Wesley used to say it, wrestling with this idea of faith and works. He'd say, obviously and certainly God does not save us because of our works. But the New Testament screams at us that neither does God save us without our works. They have a critical part to play. And maybe that mystery and that tension is a good thing for us to wrestle with and to hold on to. In other words, our work, our works, whether they be spiritual works or ordinary everyday work works, they contribute, they have the potential to contribute to the transformation of the world, the redemption of the world. Paul goes on to say, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast. That's how redemption works. Right? There's this future desire that we have to stand before God one day, making us holy and blameless without reproach before God. He's saying until that day, 
And this stuff is somehow hinging on if we continue stable and steadfast. Our everyday stuff has a role to play. And when we deny that, we make this great connection, this disconnection between Sunday and Monday, between Sunday and Thursday. And I don't believe that's the vision of the Old or New Testament or the understanding of the church. The work that you have been called to do in this life matters. I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me, maybe just this week or as long as you want. Maybe it'd be at the beginning of the workday, maybe at the end of the workday, wherever it fits for you. One of my favorite prayers comes from Psalm 19. At the end of the psalm, and you'll recognize it, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. But if we kind of work on our psalms theology a little bit, we back up to the middle of Psalm 19, and we look at Psalm 90 that we read earlier, many of the psalms and many other places, I think we could add, just for the purposes of our prayer, to connect these things, and I've just kind of penciled in here in the third line, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and the work of my hands be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.